the Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track Podcast is presented by The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spot track. Get 40% off when you subscribe. Download the app, personalize it, tell them which teams and leagues you love the most, and get exclusive ad-free content at your fingertips every single day. That's theathletic.com slash spot track. We are also presented by Dynasty Owner Fantasy Football. It's dynastyowner.com. Get you started. Click around. Understand what's happening here. This is not like your normal fantasy football situation. It's real NFL salaries. They use the average salary of players, which means when your player signs an extension, the average salary of that player will change. Your salary cap will be affected. You'll have to make decisions just like the real GMs do. You have to stay under the cap, make some roster cuts, make some trades. Your bench points count week to week, so it's not just a starting 11. It is a thought-out, well-devised, customizable situation. One of the best fantasy football sites out there, and it is DynastyOwner.com. My name is Mike Giannetti. Happy Wednesday, Thursday, whenever you're listening to this. It's a big guest show. It's less of me, more of other smarter people. Let's put it that way. Starting with Scott Allen, the NBA announced they're all NBA teams, defensive teams, things like that, rookie teams. They have financial ramifications, and Scott's got a piece on SpyTrack.com today and is going to break down some of those numbers, some of those big-time figures with us to start the show. Then Sportico's Emily Karen is back discussing the U.S. soccer decision, the CBA that now gives equal pay, equal rights for the World Cup, for the friendlies, for a lot of things, how the NWSL has changed and evolved and, and got us to this point with women's soccer. And Emily breaks down some other women's sports facts and figures as well. And then the back end of the show, we go to The Athletic with Daniel Kaplan, sports business writer for The Athletic, who uh, did a great piece that really I thought was interesting in this current landscape on cryptocurrency and the exchanges for crypto and how they're infiltrating sports, right? Players are using crypto. Players are, are, are taking some of their salary and diving into crypto with it. But teams are investing, sponsorships, things like that. We're putting, we're putting labels on jerseys now. Leagues are, are, are involved. You're going to start to see more and more of that. Um, and it's basically a buyer beware situation that Daniel Kaplan's laying out for us, which is, you know, there's a lot of risk. And he's not sure that that risk is being conveyed properly. You know, it's a bit of a gambling, tobacco, alcohol industry type situation where, you know, we've kind of regulated those processes where sponsorships come with disclaimers and risk and things like that. But I'm not sure that, and he's not sure that the weight that the, that crypto can carry because the volatility of it is being displayed properly, even though sports appears to be all in on it. So it's a great piece. And he, under, he breaks that down for us at the back end of this show. All right, Scott, the majority of the NBA, all NBA teams, defensive teams, pretty much all the awards now are known entities. And that means financial ramifications. Let's break it down a little bit. What are the most, uh, I, I guess, the, the most egregious ramifications? Who's, who stands to make the most or maybe who's lost the most here based on these, uh, these selections? Uh, we'll start with uh, you know, first at, uh, all NBA first team. Devin Booker is eligible for a veteran extension with the all NBA first team nod. He can now be eligible for a supermax designated veteran extension, which will jump him up to a potential four year, $211 million based off of the 134 estimated cap, because that wouldn't even start until 24, 25 season. Cause he still has two years left. And, and so, that's the important part because that would be post Chris Paul, most likely. And, <laughs> correct. Right. So it could kind of be the next generation of this thing. So that's and, probably and, in the card. 
It, it may be, but for a team that does not necessarily like to pay, I mean, we've been down that road a million times with DeAndre Ayton. So are they going to even want to entertain that now or do you just hold off? But, you know, the 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 option is... He's got a lot of injury team. history too. I mean, he is all he's a first-team All-NBA player inconsistently, right? I mean, he's got that in him, but I'm not sure he can put that together for four or five seasons. So that is a difficult decision. You're right. Not just because of what the franchise is there. Yeah, absolutely. And then similar conversation is Carl Anthony Towns, Mm -hmm. exact same situation. He ended up with an all NBA third team. So that triggers the exact same thing that uh, Devin Booker could have because he has two years left on his deal. And I, I it, right, exactly. Dude, dude, that's a hard pill to swallow as well. Yeah, because I think the the franchise is not running around Anthony Edwards now, right? I mean, it's not. I don't think it's Cat's team anymore. Correct. So to supermax the second player in, that's that's a difficult decision. I, I mean, they they've got something going, so you might you might see them do that. But again, that's two years out. I mean, you're gonna have to pay Anthony Edwards at that point in time, right? Right. And whoever else uh, that, that might be on the roster, you know, you got D'Angelo Russell that m- may want to get paid at some point mm. with an extension. So, you know, those are two hard pills to swallow. Obviously, it doesn't have to get done this year, but um, those those all NBA nods triggered those. The other one that was a big trigger was Trey Young getting all NBA third team because of his rookie scale extension language that he had last offseason that he signed right if he made any team he would be eligible to go up to the 30 percent. so him being on the all nba third team he now is going to have a contract that is estimated at five years to 12 and change uh based off the 122 cap right now so, so he gets luca's cap- contract luca was already there and trey right. young now graduated to that new contract so he gets the 30 percent right. max now as well okay that, well, which that's is another that's another eyebrow raiser though. I mean, Trey had a weird year, so it's he did. <laughs> I mean, and, those are three but, names that significantly uh, can or will actually. Trey already d- triggered that contract, so he will earn that money. Uh, but the cat and the and the Booker situations are they, they at least hold some question marks. I, I would think. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and it's interesting that the two players from that rookie class that ended up being traded for each other yeah. now are ma- both making supermax rookie extensions. So, yeah, but there's, you know, there's a clear winner here so far. Oh, there, yeah, <laughs> There's an absolutely clear winner. I just think it's, it's interesting how yeah. those things kind of fell, but you know, it, it is, a, you make a great point with, with Trey. It was kind of a weird year. Now by this trigger, it, it, could jump around, you know, it's jumping around $35 million extra on that deal that he originally signed. Scott, what does it kick in? Is it, is it this coming season? Yeah, it will be this season. It'll yeah. kick in. So that it also makes it harder to build around him. Well, it know. does because now when you're dealing with that roster construction, you have players on that roster that may be in limbo of being cut because of, yeah. you know, that value going up that much more. You've got players like, um, you know, Gallinari, he is only guaranteed at $5 million right now. So he's partially guaranteed. You've got other players that could be in limbo or, you know, you're right. How, how do they move forward with that high salary with what's on the books right now and coming off of the year that they had? 
Yeah, it's a big step up. No question about it. Um, John Morant gets a little closer to that kind of contract, right? Yeah, he does. It, it, it didn't automatically trigger because he still has the one more year to go. Yeah. So if he ends up getting an all NBA nod next year, then he can trigger whatever language there is in there. Now, knowing that he had an all NBA nod this year, it'll be interesting to see if he has any tears or if he ends up having mm. a Trey young situation where if it's any of the all NBAs now, he's just going to get the 30% or, you know, is I would think because of where he was drafted that, that it's any team, don't you think? But I guess yeah, it's, I, it, it's, I would think so. It's a, it's a universal conversation i mean we will have to kind of go through keith smith and here a little bit and figure out those details but he's at least with, with the second team not he at least gets himself in, the, in that conversation for the rookie supermax and we'll be probably discussing that this time next offseason most likely um how about the mvp the joker yeah i mean he's already locked in because he's had MVPs and the all NBA nods for the last few years. So he's already eligible this off season to have the designated supermax, like we've been talking about. So how early is that two years out though? I mean, would this be a very early extension? It it would be, I think he would have actually, he's entering, he's got one more. Yeah. So he's on an expiring. So it'd be this year plus five more. So that's probably going to happen. That's probably part of this off season. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. And he said if it's offered to him, he's signing it right away. So he's already come out and said that. And the reason he had to wait, I mean, he triggered this last year, and but he couldn't do it in that offseason because of the rules of when you've signed your extension, having to wait a certain amount of time after having signed an already extension. So there were some rules that came into play where now he can sign that extension this offseason and it would add five years on. I have some homework for you based on this. Can we find any kind of connection or correlation or, you know, positive or negative to early max or super max extensions versus teams getting it to the finish line? Because it just seems like a bad idea for Denver to continue to lock in these core players at max, at max terms, max lengths, because they're just not the kind of franchise that has shown that they could put together a winning organization come June, you know? And, it feels a little Utah-y, you know what I mean? It's just I do, and there's a lot of this. It's hard. This is I'm not saying this is easy work, easy business, but is there a team out there that has has just thrown the money out there, right? Early early extensions, early contracts, because the names I'm thinking in my head, they certainly have not won, right? And I wonder if there is an example of a player. I, I mean, I, I guess Steph is probably in this conversation, but did Steph even sign a, a true supermax? I'm not sure he did, right? Yeah, I don't. I'd have to double check yeah, on that. I'm not so sure. It's a decent little project. It, it, uh, are the winning teams? Are the most successful teams, regardless of whether they have you know all all fifty players or not? Right? If they, if they have elite superstar players, what, at, at what point in time are they winning those championships? Is it before the supermax? Is it in the middle of the supermax? Is it immediately following the supermax extension? I bet there's some sort of correlation, some sort of trend here. Because while it is a soft cap in this league, while the luxury tax is what it is, some teams just kind of brush it aside, Golden State being one of them, I I have to think that the situation the Lakers are in right now, you know, where they they literally pigeonholed themselves down three max situations and said, we're just going to plug and play with minimum contracts after that. 
that can't be a recipe. That can't be something that teams have been doing the past decade and getting themselves in position to win. That's not how LeBron's teams have been in the past. I can tell you that. This is a very unique situation. So, I, no, I just, and you made a great. Yeah, I just wonder if there's of, if there's some sort of a, a, you know, correlation you can bring out or trend or even just kind of motto you can bring out to say, look, this is what the best teams are doing when they have their superstar. And, and you know, in certain cases, it's going to be guys on rookie contracts still, so that'll be a bit jaded. But what happens when we get to this situation with Luca and Trey, when when they're two hundred million dollar players and not twenty million dollar players? Well, yeah, and you made a great point because the two names that come to mind are Damian Lillard and John Wall. They yep. they both were extended early, and yeah. it, Lillard could have the chance of being extended again early. Bradley Beal so, a couple times was extended early. Yeah, I mean. So, yeah, I, that, that's a interesting exercise. I'll dive into that and see what I can find. Okay. Um, anyone else? This You know, LeBron makes the third team. Chris Paul makes the third team. Um yeah, and some of those, uh, you know, I, I posted an article that people can go and look and see what the cap hit was of these players that got these nods and where they ranked. So, you know, I, I put notes in there like LeBron, he made the All-NBA third team, but he's eligible for an, a veteran extension this offseason, but this triggers has no ba- no bearing on yeah, what when, he's going to make. Yeah, when you play 20 that. years, there's nowhere to go. I mean, you're already <laughs> at the max. <laughs> right, you know, and some of these were already just starting – extensions or in the middle of an extension. So the, the, the nod has no bearing on mm-hmm. that contract already. I mean, there were some interesting caveats with like the all defensive team, Drew Holiday, he earned $120,000 bonus uh, because he got that nod in addition to some other, you know, triggers with making offseason things uh, in the playoffs. But for him specifically, because he made an all defensive team, he got a bonus. Um, I like that a lot. I wish there was more of that. I, I, I do too. I, I would like to see more of those incentives in there for guys that get these nods because, you know, especially the all defensive, you know, we talk about offense, 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 but then you, you get these guys that are great two way players and sure. they don't necessarily have those triggers in there. Um, let's see. Let's talk about this all defensive team because I've got two players that stand out to me as. Will they even be back with their current team next year? I think okay. Rudy Gobert and Matisse mm-hmm. Thybul are heavily on the trade block right now. And to some degree, are, are decent two-way players. I think Gobert a little bit more. What's the likelihood that both these players are gone in 2022-23? Um, Philly's going to do something. Some, yeah, they and are if it's not hard, and it's going to be a couple of other pieces, right? Right. Yeah. That, that whole, I mean, we've talked about that franchise over the last yeah. month and a half, two months blew in our face. So something may give, I don't necessarily know if he is going to go. I, if I had to guess which one, if one went, I think Rudy yeah. is potentially going first to wherever it might be. I mean, we've talked about that as well. Um, hey, is there so, a chance Utah completely blows this up? I think there is a chance that Utah could blow it I up. I do too, because I think I've, Donovan Mitchell is is, is <laughs> yep. a is a is a prize. I think he's being underserved, undervalued, and he's not playing to his maximum potential. I mean, he's he's not a two way player right now. He 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 needs he needs another superstar around him, a different superstar around him, and I I really hope that happens. And I think if that does happen, Utah is going to break this thing right down. Which I actually think it's the right time in their in their contention window to do so. I I I, I agree with that because. 
for what you could get back for a Donovan Mitchell and right. a Rudy Gobert, you could probably restock, you know, through the draft, rebuild, get some solid players back that necessarily aren't ripping it all the way down. Right. And we've talked OKC for a player like Gobert, you know, some sort of big time presence defensively in the middle of the paint to go with some of these wings that they've hit on in the draft. And they've got draft assets galore, you know? So I do think that's a situation to monitor. We've, we've put Gobert on 11 teams so far this offseason, but I just think that <laughs> because, you're, because you're right, if they're going to rip it down, they wa- they're going to want significant draft capital back for both those players, and nobody has more than OKC. So they have to be in this conversation when we're talking about something like this. But I don't think Denver's ready to do that, you know? I, but I do think no, U- Utah I don't think- might be. Yeah, I think Utah might be. I think Denver needs one more year to yeah. see the the Murray, the Porter Jr., the Jokic, the, that combination. I think they need a year of all of them being healthy to really see what they have. Whereas Utah, for the most part, has had all of their core guys there and playing. And so I, I agree. It may be time. And depending on the Quinn Snyder situation where, you know, is he going to be back? My guess is yes, since they haven't done anything yet, but I agree. If, if if they're going to do something, you want to sell high on the pieces that you have. The sixth man of the year, Tyler hero is entering an expiring rookie contract. He'll be rookie extension eligible. He's going to get some sort of extension offer from Miami, right? I mean, he's in their plans, I would imagine. And if not, he's a very tradable asset, right? Yeah. And we, well, again, we've been down that road as well. Keith did a great piece on options for hero. Yeah. He He's team controlled for one more year. So they need to figure out if they want to do what kind of extension, then what happens with Duncan Robinson or any of those other uh, pieces on that team. Uh, so Miami has a lot of decisions to make as far as their roster moving forward, but I would expect him to get an extension so that it, it, it the Miami Heat know he is controlled moving forward. And then if they need to move off from him after a year or Robinson or whatever it might be, they at least have the control that they know they have him under contract. The, the five-year max for him projected about 186 would be the, the highest contract on the Miami heat. I mean, is that, is that where they're going here? <laughs> I, I don't necessarily know he's going to get the max from them, but you know, crazier things have happened. Is, is he in a situation? Do you think it's a, it, it could be a Deandre Ayton situation where he believes he can get a max elsewhere? And and he simply says no to this to a low ball rookie extension this offseason, gets himself to restrict a free agency and plays this out. I wonder if the DeAndre uh, Ayton situation that's about to unfold is going to be extremely enlightening to him, right? I mean, he wants to see how this finishes off now that Ayton has made that decision to get the restricted free agency. And if it benefits Ayton, right, if he goes to a halfway decent team on a max contract, why wouldn't Hero play those chips? Yeah, I could see that happening. Can I give you a different scenario that I think could play out? Okay. So so what if he does a not max, but a decent extension, maybe two, three years that rides out through the Jimmy Butler, yeah. Kyle Lowry experiment here. And then if he's still on that team, then he can 
if he's still playing at this production, then he can do a max. And and where I'm getting this from is Steph Curry, when he did his initial rookie extension, it was a four year, $44 million, which looks bonkers now (laughs) in hindsight, but they didn't even know about him yet though. They were kind of just taking a chance on him at that point in time. So I guess there's some correlation there. You're right. So I, I think they could slow play and and give him a two-year deal. Obviously, you know, depending on what him and his agent want, they may want the, the long-term deal to be locked in, not knowing if he's yeah. going to be able to continue with this production. But, you know, you know, Jimmy's already, now that I'm looking at the multi-year here, Kyle has this upcoming year plus 2023. So if you plan it where... Kyle can potentially come off the books and then hero comes on. Butler's already extended through 25, 26. So you've already got him locked up. You've got bam locked up. So they could potentially slow play it. But again, like you said, he couldn't, he could technically go that qualifying offer route, but that his qualifying offer is not going to be as much as what Aiton's is because Aiton was the number one overall pick too. So there's going to be some definite negotiation in there. If I'm, if I'm Tyler Hero's agent, I'm not accepting less than max this offseason. I'm not afraid of Rich Richard free agency. I think he's done enough. I know there's an injury history with him, but I think that Miami is using him intelligently, but not mm-hmm. to his full potential. And an, and another team could simply say that out loud. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it could be, it could be a, uh, yeah, like a James Harden situation where he went from Oklahoma City Bingo. to a. a the Houston and then exploded. They gave him the extension exploded. And we, we know what history has been with that. So I I could definitely see a situation of that coming up. Um, The, the other interesting thing with hero is the timing because, you know, he, depending on how he plays this out and when the new CBA could be done and 2023 is stacked with, free agents right now. So mm. do, do you want to be part of that pool of massive players that could be up for free agents and people, you know, depending on where teams are with what they sign in this off season with, from a cap space perspective, it could be insane signing trades because of the amount of players that might be free agents and teams not necessarily having cap space to sign them outright. So that's where the tricky part goes with the, the, the restricted free agent part is if he does get to that where he's dealing with a qualifying offer, a team has to have cap space in order to sign them to that qualifying. That's a good point, Scott. If him and his agent and the Miami Heat, that you really do have to look long-term and know what the landscape could be knowing. It's that's why I say it's easier to be on a long-term extension and demand a trade than it is to get to yeah. to free to any kind of free agency where cap space gets involved. Is that, is that right. what you're saying? And that is where I was going to go. You're better off locking him up now to some sort of extension so that you have the control. And if he wants out at some point, he already has his salaries locked up and obviously he's not going to get a, a, a situation where he is going to have a no trade clause and say, I want to go to said team and then I'll waive it. But as long as he's under contract, then the 
the options may be more than just waiting for a sign and trade and going to a team that you may not want to go or Miami gets locked into a player coming back on a sign and trade that or just in a trade per se that they don't necessarily want to be pigeonholed into. Good point. Anybody else on this list we should talk about? I mean, they, we, we yeah, kind of glazed over the rookies here. Anybody standing out there? Um, no, I mean, th- those rookies are, are what they are. And, you know, they're locked into their rookie scale extensions and not much you're going to do about those. They're two years away from having the uh, extension conversations, right? R- right. So and being giving a nod to this has no financial implications whatsoever. So I do think it's good news that basically the first five picks are on here. <laughs> I mean, yes, it seems like it was, it was a successful draft. There's no question about it. Yeah, and I agree with that. And hopefully these drafts continue to be able to produce all NBA first teams where your top five, six picks yeah. are going to be there. I mean, that's just that's just good business good for the league moving forward as a whole. Yeah. Um, one, one item I wanted to mention, which I saw Bobby Marks brought up this point and I, I, it caught me, caught me off guard and I had to think about it. So I figured I'd bring it up with you to see what your thoughts are because you're sort of, you know, outside of the NBA as a whole, mm-hmm. but you follow to a certain extent. He had an interesting point where, you know, Jason Tatum got the non first, all NBA first team this year. Had he gotten it last year, if you remember back where people were hemming and hawing, whether they should even get him to the third team, he would have triggered a step up in his contract salary. Bobby Marchman, right? Some, yeah, somewhere around there. He made an interesting point of maybe there should be an amendment to, if you get the all NBA in, your rookie year leading up into your extension, or you get it in the first year of your rookie extension where it would bump up your second through fifth year uh, salary. I, I, that's, that's the exact thought that I, I'm had. not even sure that I like that this stuff is tied to the finances. Like, you know what I mean? Let alone amending it so that more, there's more control with the finance. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I struggle with that. this. Like I, this is, you know, now the NFL is doing this with pro bowls and fifth year options. Like it's, there's a lot of objectivity and subjectivity built into this now. And it's not, it's not nickel and dime. It's tens of millions of dollars in difference here. Right. And the fact that people that are voting could specifically say, I'm not going to vote for said player because we don't want him to necessarily trigger that. I I mean, let's be fair. I don't think anybody's actually saying that out loud and thinking it through that much. Right. So I'm, I'm being a little bit, flippant here with this i mean do you really think somebody's saying that about jason tatum last year well if i if i vote him in there's a chance he makes 200 million dollars and i don't think he's a 200 million dollar player nobody's saying that right no but could there have been back channeling from a team to say oh maybe you know collusion in that aspect well you think boston's paying voters not to vote for him (laughs) it's probably (laughs) that's a hot take man it's probably a massive farce. I'm just saying <laughs> I found it interesting from the with the new CBA coming up, if they opt out and they go into that new CBA, is that something that is on the table that could be amended or yeah. shifted to allow that to happen? That um, I've had a few of those thoughts while we've talked here, actually, like the whole player empowerment thing as a whole. You know, like we were talking about how easy it is for guys to just get traded, regardless of what their contract is. 
Is the new CBA going to change that somehow? Are, are they going to clamp down on the players a little bit? Because Adam Silver has been all, all in on the players. And at some point in time, the ownerships are going to come back and say, look, man, you got you to give us a little bit here, right? I mean, these guys are walking all over us, you know? And I, I'm worried that... Not worried. I, I think the NBA is in a very good spot, but I, I do think the owners could clamp down a little bit here, which would change some things that we've talked about here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, from from what we've been seeing in contracts of these rookie scale extensions having these tiers yeah. or allowing not only the tiers and the fifth year option or the fifth years, but you're getting the player option instead of a club option or non-guaranteed, you know. So that to a certain extent, the players do have a lot of power right now as far as what their contracts are. I could potentially see there being some pullback. Yeah. And it could be more so from these extremely high salaries of $61 million that we're potentially going to be seeing here. So uh, there, let me ask you this. Do you think think the supermax stuff could be dead? Um, do you think it's necessary? It's probably not necessary. I think the idea of it when it first was implemented was a good idea from the standpoint of you're paying your guys that you've drafted and you've wanted to retain. You're you're giving them that extra year, mm-hmm. which is extra money as a thank you. Yes, we want to continue down your path. However, with the rising cap where it's gone, I don't necessarily think they foresaw this salaries going where <laughs> them go. Literally sixty million a year. Right. So I, I think that could be something that is talked about. And I could be way off base. Keith may have a different opinion. Yeah. But I think that could be something that is talked about here moving forward to curb a, a sixty million dollar salary. You know, but I agree. And we've talked about this before. In the yeah, end. let's shelve it because I think we can have a nice little CBA roundtable at some point with Keith and some of his friends and you and I and, and really kind of hammer through what's working, what's not working, where the league might be going. Because you're right, that's sneaking up on us here. You know, I mean, we're kind of acting at, as business as usual right now because it is. But, you know, three, four years out here, maybe this current rookie class, right? This Cade Cunningham, Scotty Barnes class here they may be in for a, a very different situation come rookie extension and then uh, veteran extension time, you know? Yeah, and that, that's a great point too because now that the rookie scale is tied to the cap rising mm-hmm. or falling, but you know they're hoping it's always going to rise, that means all of these rookies right now, depending on what happens with TV money, if there's a spike, then there might be a spike with that rookie scale. There, That means... These players that are coming in more molded, let, let's, for example, say Evan Mobley, he yeah. takes another extreme jump next year and the year after and gets these all NBA nods and then can become 30% supermax eligible. That's we're talking about Trey Young and Luka Doncic at 212 right now. That means when Evan Mobley's up, that's going to be probably up near what 250 somewhere around there. So we're talking about massive salaries for the rookie scale if they continue to grow as some of them have been. 
Okay, Scott did a great piece breaking down all this information with all the numbers on SpotTrek.com. I'll continue to tweet that out with some of these details today at SpotTrek on Twitter. Scott, thanks so much. Thanks. Have a good one. Okay, Emily, it's been a minute. Welcome back to the show. Emily Karen from Sportico did uh, a lot of great work, as always, on female sports, but this time specifically with U.S. soccer as a whole, not just the women, but the men, because there's a bit of equality with finally a new CBA in U.S. soccer. Emily, welcome to the show and break down uh, the specifics, if you don't mind. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, This CBA was somewhat expected. Uh, The U.S. women's national team players who were in that sort of six-year legal battle with U.S. soccer over um, pay inequity and sort of discrimination in terms of their wages ended up settling the suit a few months ago but the settlement was contingent upon the fact that a new CBA was signed that had equal terms for the men's and women's national teams. So we knew it was coming, but the hard part was actually hashing out the details of those terms and figuring out how to, I think the, the biggest hurdle, uh, in my opinion, obviously wasn't part of the process, but uh, I would assume was figuring out how to equalize the FIFA World Cup payouts. Um, the FIFA pool for the men's nat- or for the men's World Cup is uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and the women's World Cup, the most recent one, the entire prize pool was about $30 million. So France, who won the last men's World Cup, actually took home more than the entire women's prize pool from their most recent World Cup. <laughs> right. And, so Yeah, it's nuts, right? So, so does, that mean, does that mean U.S. soccer is going to have to essentially foot some of the bill to pay off the women properly here? No, so what they're actually doing is pretty interesting, and and this probably took a lot of the haggling on the men's team, um, is they essentially got the men's team to agree to pooling all of the prize money won by both teams Got it. from FIFA and then distributing it equally amongst um, all the members. Now, I will say, in a situation where the men's national team does not qualify for the World Cup, <laughs> like we just saw, they would make out well in this deal. Um, but, you know, in most cases, you know, knock on wood here, I think most of the time they'll at least qualify. Um, and even this year, just for qualifying their first game, I think they're going to, you know, take home $10 million or $10.5 million for participating in a qualifying round, right? So already the women's team is going to benefit from the equalization of that money just if you look at this upcoming year. And just to clarify, it's not just World Cup, right? It's all the friendlies throughout the year. It's all the ins and outs. Everything that happens is basically on equal pay standards now, correct? Yes. So the men's and women's national teams will now... So the women's national team players essentially used to be salaried, um, if you will. That's kind of the easiest way to explain how it worked. And the men's national team were played sort of per appearance. And there were different fees set for friendlies and that kind of stuff, like you just mentioned, now they will all be playing per or be paid per play, uh, per appearance, and it will be equal terms between the men's and women's national teams. And then on top of that, all the FIFA money will be distributed equally. So the entire thing has identical economic terms, which was the goal um, of this lawsuit and the women's national teams kind of very lengthy fight the entire time. So. I have to imagine that the the guaranteed salaries for the women, especially some of the more notable ones, that was a big deal for a long, long time because it was just such kind of like a rogue situation for them, right? And uh, even with the NDSL here, that situation, I I don't even believe they were being properly compensated with the NWSL because of the U.S. soccer guaranteed salaries, right? There was some, basically some some give and take between those two situations. Seems like that's gone now, right? The, the NWSL yeah, so, salaries will be legitimized salaries. They'll be inside that 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 single contract structure, and then this will be exactly. added bonus for U.S. soccer, right? 
Exactly. So U.S. soccer used to subsidize the NWSL salaries of a number of their national women's team players, um, and that will no longer be the case. So whatever they get from the NWSL is going to be entirely separate from what they take home from U.S. soccer. This has to have a lot to do with the fact that the NWSL has finally figured some things out, right? And is on a really good trajectory, expansion, all that good stuff. I know you've done a lot of work on this. Do you agree with that statement or do you think it's slowly getting there, but really not at a, at a place of stability just yet? Um, I think it's, you know, time will tell. I think we need to see a few more teams turn profitable. Um, I think we also just need to see that sort of an increased commercialization of mm-hmm. some of the teams, um, which we are starting to see. I think, you know, teams like Angel City are showing that that's possible and that you can bring a number of different corporate partners on board um, with success. I apologize. That's my puppy. Welcome. <laughs> Always goes nuts at lunchtime. <laughs> I, I think that's right. And, and I, do, I do like that there's a set standardized pay now in all facets, right? Like the, the fact that it was rogue and, and look, I, I do this for a living in terms of trying to figure out the understanding of actual contract specifics. It was almost impossible with some of these players, some of the more notable U.S. women's soccer players, because they were basically being paid behind the table, right? Under the table for some of this. And their professional league was what it was. So at least now there's some structure. I think this will help the NWSL continue to grow because everybody's on the same playing field, financially speaking, right? Yeah, that's probably fair. Um, I think obviously the thing that the NWSL still has to overcome, and, and much of this is because, you know, it's a 10-year-old league, but yeah. in terms of actually becoming, you know, a, a sustainable business model, they're still on their way. They're well on their way, but there's still, you know, that part is still a work in progress. Um, but you look at, right, the minimum salary of an NWSL player is still $35,000, yeah. which is not a livable salary. Um, so there's definitely progress to be made. But then you look at the fact that that was a sizable jump from the previous minimum salaries um, and the CBA was able to lock in, obviously, some annual increases to that kind of stuff and, you know, up the average player compensation substantially. So there's progress being made. I think it's just slow and steady, which, you know, unfortunately, is often the case in women's sports. They kind of continue to have to really prove their worth before people um, invest in a way that, you know, a lot of men's sports and men's teams, people will kind of bank on them from the beginning to get them started, whether that's with media rights or whatnot. But women's sports kind of have a an opposite approach, unfortunately. Yeah, but yeah, they're had, well on their way. We've had this conversation quite a bit with the WNBA as well, where it was basically like a, like a 20-year, 25-year race just to get this to be a, a single salary situation for these women, right? I mean, so many of them were subsidizing with whatever, part-time jobs or going, going across seas to to try to supplement their income, that's slowly starting to dissipate with how things have progressed in that league. But again, it took 25 years to even start to start a road, right? I mean, the NWSL could yeah. might never get there. Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't want to agree with I that. I know, but, I know, me neither. You know, you know uh, I think, like I said, I think we'll see. Um, there are, I mean, average salary is probably going to hover around $60,000, which is not, you know, a fortune, but that is uh, a livable wage at this point. So that I think in itself is a great starting point. Um, You think about all the ways these athletes can supplement their income. It it could be at some point. Um, And I think, you know, the WNBA is an interesting situation because there are so many opportunities for those women to go abroad and make substantial money. I think, you know, there are opportunities. Obviously, we've seen a number of uh, American players go play, especially in Europe and in England in the last couple of years. but it's not not to the scale that there are opportunities for American basketball players to go play overseas. Um, I think 
the opportunities are more limited. There's tougher competition in terms of, you know, the WNBA is far and away the best women's soccer or women's, excuse me, women's basketball league in the world. Um, so they, you know, this is sort of an off-season money-making opportunity for them as opposed to mm. really going there for the competition. Whereas in soccer, if you're going abroad, you're going for the competition, and it's going to be much more competitive to kind of make those uh, major dollars. Okay, let's switch gears and then we'll get you out of here. I know it's the middle of the day for you. Um, we haven't had a chance to talk about this kind of just briefly through text, but uh, the Athletes Unlimited has all, is all grown up, Emily. <laughs> ESPN is on board. <laughs> um, it's a big two-year deal. It's a big deal. I mean, look, they, they did well with CBS Sports and some of the streaming situations. I know there were, there were some nice steps taken forward there and the sponsorships kind of uh, really helped this thing push through. But this, is, this has to be the biggest moment for this league, right? I think getting a multi-year and multi-sport agreement for them, for media, is huge. Um, It provides a sort of consistency and stability that they were able to find media partners in the past, but they were, you know, every season in negotiations with different partners to bring someone on board, which I imagine um, is a pretty tedious task from a league perspective. Um, That said, this is definitely a big step. I think obviously ESPN has made a major push into some of the sports that they picked up with Athletes Unlimited, including lacrosse and things like that. So this is clearly part of sort of a concerted effort on their part, but it's really cool to see someone like Athletes Unlimited get roped into that um, and really sort of lock in at least the next two years for those sports and those athletes. What's cool about this is you're right. ESPN has already made major investments and they've been doing it for a long time with college lacrosse. It's, it's, the only place I can think to go to watch college lacrosse on, on a regular basis. And yep, I'm not, same and I'm, thing with PLL, NLL. Bingo, bingo whole, right. Damn it, yeah. But I and think, even college softball, right? You're talking about exactly. sports that Athletes Unlimited also has. They're a huge home for that. And, and the World Series of college softball, right? It's, a hu- it's actually a huge gift for ESPN. It's one of their biggest uh, um, events of the year, believe it or not. But this is a major shift, not just for ESPN. ESPN's all in on live sports. There's no question about that. Their, their, their studio stuff to me is so... 1% right now. It's not even funny. But this has to do with ESPN Plus, with the app, with streaming. Because the ability for them to get all of this in one place and now to have women's sports in one place, they're going to essentially be a version of ESPN Plus that is simply just women's sports, Emily. And I think it's going to be extremely successful. And I think this is just the beginning, the tip of that iceberg. So I think this is less about the name ESPN and more about literally the compilation of live sports being in one place, which to me is going to be such a big conversation for all these streaming services going forward, right? Because we're having to literally find Major League Baseball is on six different places, 67 days a week right now. And it's really, really difficult. And I think it's going to be a problem. So not only do I think the name ESPN is good for Athletes Unlimited, but I think getting themselves inside this big mix of live stream sports is just going to be such a slam dunk for them. Yeah, you said it. I would agree with that. What else is going on? You know, <laughs> there's a lot going on. I know. Uh, we I know. are at the start of the WNBA season, speaking of. Yes. Um, obviously, there's a bit of a cloud over that with everything going on with Brittany Griner still being detained in Russia. Um, but I think the league is getting underway. Hopefully, it will be a really positive season for them. Obviously, they've seen a ton of viewership growth the last couple of years, especially in the postseason. And I think what they're looking to do this year is really get that same kind of traction in the regular season, get people kind of tuned in all year long. I think you saw, probably saw some clips going viral of Diana Taurasi yeah. and Skylar Diggins-Smith kind of getting heated and getting into an exchange. And I think those kinds of moments and developing some more uh, 
you know, deep rooted rivalries will help them in that front. So we'll see how the regular season goes, but things are looking up. I just love how you're all over the place. I love looking at the 17 things you've written in the past two months and it's just all over the place. I, I, I won't go down the nil path with you, the NIL path with you, but I have to imagine that that's going to be peaked in your radar right now for the next couple of months. Am I incorrect? Yeah, you're definitely correct. I think uh, watching how people try to enforce NIL, right? Uh, enforce, I, I use very loosely, or let's put air quotes around it, uh, if you will, because I think Vince NCAA is realizing that this is sort of just a runaway train. And then NCAA is very good at being reactive as opposed to proactive. So you're seeing some reactivity now, of, you know, them being like, okay, maybe this is something we need to rein in. Whether that can actually happen is the next big question. It sure seems like the universities are just going to police themselves with this. And by police, I mean, fight, fight with each other. Right. And, and maybe that's the best approach just to let the or big boys kind of duke it out. Right. Fight with each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. I was certainly alluding to that, but you know, nobody's going to stop them from doing this, even though the SEC is simply going to, you know, try to put out some, some, uh, some muzzle c- conversations. It's not going to happen. I mean, this is, we've got $8 million quarterbacks coming into the, in, into the college football. So I, I agree there will be some sort of ramifications built into this and some sort of boundaries at some point. Uh, you mentioned the NCAA. Do you believe that that will be the governing body doing this? Yeah, I think it will be. I think it's just going to look dramatically different than how we think of the NCAA today. Yeah. Um, I think you're really going to see divisions starting to make their own, like operate autonomously. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, I think in terms of the NCAA's hand and all that, it will be much lighter. There's so much going on. I could, I could talk to you for 35 minutes. I won't. Um, follow, <laughs> please follow Emily Karen on Sportico on Twitter. Anywhere you, you need to get your sports news. It's always interesting. Like I said, she's all over the place and it's all really good stuff. Emily, thanks again for joining. Thanks for having me. All right. Big fan of his work. Thrilled to have him join the show. This is Daniel Kaplan, the sports business writer for The Athletic. Daniel, welcome to the show. Great piece on uh, crypto slash sports this morning on The Athletic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if you don't mind, just uh, just kind of briefly break it down for us in terms of uh, you know the trials and tribulations that are coming with the, the ramp up that is crypto and the sponsorships and how the leagues and the teams and players specifically are getting directly involved with this entire currency process. Well, uh, any sports fan would have had it been living in a cave for the last year, year and a half, not to have noticed the encroachment of crypto into the sports space. We've seen Crypto.com, the crypto exchange, take over the naming rights for the former Staples Center. The Miami Heat arena is named FTX Arena. The, the athletes like Tom Brady, uh, Joe Burrow, um, uh, and, and others have put their endorsement weight behind crypto. So it, it, it's all over the place. The, the piece that, I, that we wrote at The Athletic takes a look at the, the, the issue of this is not your traditional sponsorship. It's not your traditional endorsement. It's not like endorsing a Subway sandwich or a soda or, or a, an automobile. Uh, if, those, if those companies, the companies behind those products crash, it doesn't really affect the, the average fan. In this case, in crypto, the, the encouragement of the endorsement of the sponsor is to get the fans to put their money into the product. And if the product crashes, which has been happening, the fan loses their money. And that, that, is, that, that is something sports leagues, teams, athletes need to consider. And that was the point of the story. Right. And I, I, was, I was interested and intrigued and I had in the back of my mind as I'm reading, are you going to spin this off into the sports betting side of things as well? Because there's a little bit of that there as well. But you just laid out a point 
that I think differentiate the two the two lines, which is the the basis of crypto is that there's this single bean out there that you are basically investing in. And as long as that bean exists and can thrive, you will continue to make money off it. Uh, sports betting is a very one-to-one transaction, and nobody's making a bet with the notion that DraftKings or FanDuel are going to implode at some point in time, right? Is that the differentiation? Yeah, I mean, there there are obvious similarities between the the morality of sports teams and leagues pushing sports gambling on you and pushing crypto on you. Uh, sports gambling, though, it, it's pretty apparent what the risks are. I mean, everyone has a good grasp of of, of you know what the ups and downs of sports betting is. And uh, so I, I don't I, I didn't see it as a as a totally apt comparison. The the difference with cryptocurrency is that this is a risky investment asset. I realize it it advertises the future of currency, of the digital currency. We'll, we'll place fiat money. Uh, the, the we have the 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 founder of FTX recently said that even Bitcoin wouldn't be the future of money. Uh, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, he he was talking to CNBC this week, and we quoted him saying uh, that it, it has failed as the future of money. It's basically an, a risky investment asset. Now, could it go up? Yes, but it's gone down. And do teams and leagues and the athletes really want to be in the business of pitching investment advice? Yeah, I, I liked that that angle, right? And and you mentioned the athletes that are that are highly involved. It's the biggest athletes in every sport, essentially. So. They're not going small. They're going after the bigger names, and they're getting these guys and gals to really come on board. So I think they're they're at least taking the the biggest approach possible. It, you laid out kind of how each league has dove in, invested, allowed for sponsorships, and maybe have commented in most cases on crypto as a whole. Just just your your thoughts on on maybe which league uh, Americanized is is handling this the right way? Do you think is taking careful measures with crypto splash sponsorships right now? Well, the leagues like to make, uh, I mean, baseball, apparently, baseball is different in that they allow the endorsement of individual cryptocurrencies themselves. Uh, the Washington Nationals uh, last week famously were hyping Terra, the, and it, while, while the currency, that uh, Terra currency was literally imploding. Uh, but most of the leagues make a distinction between we, we allow sponsorships of the, the exchanges uh, and, and other ancillary development around crypto. But not the particular currency, whether it be Ethereum or Bitcoin or Terra. Uh, but you know that if you're a fan and you see an an advertisement to promote crypto and you put your money in crypto and you lose your all your money, I don't know if you're going to see the distinction between the company telling the sports team telling you uh, it was an exchange advertisement versus a currency advertisement. So I the the leagues and teams are trying to you know split hairs here and what they're promoting, but they're promoting cryptocurrency. Is the draw the masses amount of money or is the draw the the audience that this crypto situation has developed so far? I think it's a little of both. Um, I mean, clearly the, uh, the teams and leagues are coming off pandemic losses and suddenly this new you know, sexy hot space comes with tons of money offering it up front. It was it's hard to hard to turn down. But you know, we, we clearly for the younger generations, they may not be as risk averse. They may this is part of their, you know, part of their DNA, the digital, you know, digital asset. So that's an audience the sports leagues and teams are desperate to 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 reach. So yes, I think it's a little of both. 
Yeah, specifically with the NFL, because obviously that's going to be, you know, the, the topic of discussion here. It is the league that I think generates the most interest, certainly the most ratings. So we just had a crypto Super Bowl, as you kind of coined in this piece, which is exactly right. It was basically half the, the ad space. So they're taking a very mild approach, at least publicly with, with crypto and sponsorships, as if, as if to say, look, we get the digital side of this. We get the NFT side of this. Do you see them, though, going bigger? Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys have essentially gone in on their own, which you expected them to do. Will the league as a whole go bigger as Major League Baseball and certainly the NBA have done? Well, the, uh, the NFL has, has been very hesitant, and it was only in March that they allowed uh, teams to uh, seek endorsed sponsorships from crypto exchanges. And the Dallas Cowboys, as you said, unsurprisingly, were the first one in with blockchain.com. And there are other, and I expect other teams to, to you know, sign deals in this space, maybe not right away with the current crash of crypto, but we'll, we'll see more, more deals. Uh, it's hard to say whether they will expand their their presence in crypto, the NFL, uh, if they will allow sponsorships, endorsements of individual cryptocurrencies, uh, whatnot. If the teams and leagues league will start taking money in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, uh, it, it's it's really hard to say. But the NFL has been cautious, and I know there was some frustration internally at the league about that for a while. But it does look a little smart right now. It does. That, that's kind of why I brought it up. It does seem to be that they're slow playing it, which is not normal for the NFL. Usually they're all in on, on any kind of dollar signs. Uh, just in your general opinion, after doing this peach and do, doing the research, I'm, I'm Buffalo based here, Daniel. There's a big new stadium going up here down the road for me in a couple of years. Do, huh. you, do you think we'll get to a point where, where the NFL will allow a crypto exchange to be the official uh, naming rights of the Buffalo Bill Stadium if that was an option? Well, uh, that's an option now. I mean, they, the, 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 the the blockchain.com sponsorship that Dallas Cowboys signed yep. that, that could, I mean, that could have been a naming rights deal. There's nothing that prevents, prevents it. The, the question is whether an individual cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum uh, could, could sponsor uh, a stadium. But um, I, my, my, my guess is that we won't see a naming rights deal in the NFL for crypto, given the events of the last couple of weeks in the space. Last question. We've seen a few athletes go down this route. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie in the NBA, certainly Odell Beckham Jr. in the NFL. There's been a few more. At least they publicly came out and said, I'm, I'm putting all or some of my salary into Bitcoin and kind of taking that risk. Is that a trend that you think will continue? Or do you think that some of the volatility and some of the inconsistencies will keep these athletes away from it? Um, I, I would be surprised if we see much more of that, given, I mean, I think Darren Ravel at the Action Network has done great work. <laughs> pointing out how much some of these athletes have lost by trans, you know, transferring their salaries into Bitcoin. And so, so the listener understands, it's not that the athletes are getting paid in Bitcoin, right. they're getting the traditional paycheck and then they're converting it into Bitcoin uh, in, a, in a secondary process. It has nothing to do uh, with the team. Uh, it, look, I mean, athletes are free to invest their money any way they want. Uh, when, I'm sure when an athlete invests half their paycheck into a restaurant or into a, yeah. into a stock, we don't see headlines about that, but this is really no different. It's a great piece. It's great work. And obviously at The Athletic, there's a lot going on. Daniel, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you. My thanks to Daniel Kaplan. Visit, check him out at The Athletic. And of course, Emily Karen at Sportico. She's M underscore Karen on Twitter. And also Scott Allen. Great piece on spotrick.com today, breaking down the NBA financial ramifications for the 
season award winners. Check out The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash Spotrek. Get yourself 40% off that first year. And visit dynastyowner.com. Get yourself started in a brand new fantasy football league using real NFL salaries. For Scott Allen, my name is Mike Chinetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Spot Track Podcast.